The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. A little later on, we'll speak with Professor Dan Brockington about what the real benefits are of celebrity advocacy of charitable organizations. But first, let's look at what happens when science and celebrity culture clash. With me is Timothy Caulfield, a professor in the Faculty of Law and the School of Public Health at the University of Alberta in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. He's also a research director of the Health Law and Science Policy Group at the University of Alberta, and in recent years has led and collaborated on a number of research projects having to do with the social challenges associated with genome technology, stem cell research, and the application of ethics and health science. He's a member of the Royal Society of Canada and the Canadian Academy of Health Sciences, and has been involved with a number of national and international policy and research ethics committees, including the Canadian Biotechnology Advisory Committee, Genome Canada's Science Advisory Committee, and the Federal Panel on Research Ethics. He's also the author of The Cure for Everything, Untangling the Twisted Messages about Health, Fitness, and Happiness, and is here today to talk about his new book, Is Gwyneth Paltrow Wrong About Everything? When Celebrity Culture and Science Clash. Tim, welcome. Always good to have you here. Well, thanks very much. Uh, looking forward to it. Your book explores the realities and effects of celebrity culture from a couple of different angles. Um, but what got you interested in it in the first place? Uh, well, it's funny. During my sort of my day job is is taking evidence and seeing what that evidence says about particular policy issues. And in general, it's in health, but increasingly, I'm looking at it in other in other domains. And over the past, I think, you know, 10 years, and, and perhaps it's just because I, I became more aware of it, it seemed like celebrities were having a bigger and bigger influence on, not only on the debate, so if you think like the vaccination debate that we're having right now, but, but also uh, on individual decisions and what people seem to be aware of. So that, I became very interested in that. But in, in addition to that, on a more personal level, uh, I just kind of love celebrity culture. <laughs> so I thought it was a, a fine excuse uh, to explore a lot of these issues, which I think are really important, health and how we view ourselves and how we view uh, our future uh, through the lens uh, of celebrity culture. And I guess the last reason uh, I did this is a little, to use celebrity culture as a little bit of a Trojan horse, right, to, uh, as an excuse to, to explore what the evidence really says about um, about a lot of these uh, topics, and, and just to to use it as an excuse to debunk uh, what a lot of uh, a lot of the the common messages we hear about health uh, and how to live the good life. Okay, so let's be clear: this isn't a book where you just pick on Gwyneth Paltrow for three hundred and fourteen pages. Um, but you <laughs> you did single her out on the cover, and to some extent inside as well. Why Gwyneth Paltrow? Yeah, you're right. I, I don't just pick on Gwyneth, although I probably could have done that for three hundred pages. I don't just pick on Gwyneth, uh, and, and I, I talk about many other other celebrities throughout the book, like Katy Perry, for example. But I think I think Gwyneth is fair game because, first of all, I think she is sort of symbolic of the role of celebrity culture in in these in this realm. You know, she talks about health. She kind of holds herself out as an authority, um, and but more importantly, she it's part of her brand, right? It's part of who she is. You know, so you have a lot of celebrities that just you know talk sort of incidentally about what they eat and their diet and their exercise routine. And that has an influence too, but it's not really you know part of their business plan, so to speak. With Gwyneth, it really is. I mean, she has this company Goop, and she really speaks like she's an authority, and she is clearly trying.
trying to influence people. So I think it's fair game to hold her to a standard, and I think that standard should be science. So are we more or less engaged with celebrity culture now than perhaps we used to be? So I argue in the book that we are more uh, engaged in celebrity culture. Um, and, you know, as you can imagine, when I told people about the, this book, a lot of people said, oh, what a great idea. That sounds fun. But, you know, I'm not influenced by celebrity culture. And I think one of the one of the points I try to make is we're all influenced by it because it is our culture now. You know, it, it is our culture. Celebrity culture is uh, the dominant culture. And we can't help but be influenced by it, even if we don't realize that we are. And so I try to make that argument in the early stages uh, uh, of the book. But in addition to that, there's, there's just no doubt that celebrity culture is not only is it everywhere uh, now and much more so than it was in the past, I, there are things like social media have you know, kicked up the influence. Um, you know, there's some interesting research that suggests that you know, uh, social media, things like Twitter, uh, allow celebrities to have this kind of parasocial relationship with individuals, uh, and that increases the influence that celebrities may have, uh, be it in the context of diet or exercise or even just what their life is like and you know, how we should live the good life. So yeah, I think it, celebrity culture is having more influence now than it ever has. And there are a number of interesting reasons why that is the case. What kind of reasons are there? Well, you know, the, the, it, there's been some fun speculation, and, and again, this is speculation um, that we may even be evolutionarily predisposed to follow celebrities. Um, and it's hard to test this empirically, but I, I find it a, a fascinating idea. So it's been suggested that throughout most of human history, there was an evolutionary advantage to following people who have prestige, um, because those individuals with prestige, perhaps they had, they had skills that were beneficial to survival. So they're good hunters or something like that. And so if you look to them and learn quickly from them, that was uh, to your advantage. And the idea is that we have remnants of that kind of evolutionary predisposition uh, with us still, even though it doesn't, you know, following Kim Kardashian doesn't give you any kind of evolutionary advantage, but we still have that tendency uh, to, to follow those individuals or at least to notice them. In addition to that, there's uh, interesting research on um, how we compare ourselves to others. So for most of human history, um, when we saw an individual, um, that individual was either right in front of us, right? We saw an image of a human being, that individual was either right in front of us, or with some kind of crude drawing or painting and high quality paintings for most of human history, you know, were, were not accessed by much of the population. So, you know, generally speaking, you were comparing yourself physically uh, to other individuals that you could see in front of you. Now, of course, that our social comparators are everywhere. They're on our phone. You know, we're getting pictures of supermodels all the time. They're, they're everywhere, right? So that changes how our, our social comparators. Now, one thing I, I do note in the book, I have a whole chapter on this, is I'm a science geek and I like high-quality evidence. It's hard to study this stuff, right? But I think if you look at the body of, of evidence on, on the influence of popular culture, it, it does suggest that these kinds of forces are having an impact. You mentioned social media and that it's increasing the impact that celebrities can have on this. What's the theory there? So the, the theory is, uh, you know, I touched on it briefly before. The theory is that um, first that it creates this parasocial relationship. You feel closer to it. So when Katy Perry, who has uh, over 60 million followers, when she tweets something about vitamins and she's all about living a vitamin life, she, allegedly she uh, consumes 26 
different supplements a day. Um, when she tweets about that, uh, the people that receive the tweet, or at least a portion of them, feel like they're, that Katy Perry is speaking directly to them, right? So in the past, you know, think of someone like Grace Kelly. She seemed very removed and, and almost like royalty. Now celebrities seem very, very close, and that closeness, so the theory goes, increases the influence that they, they could have over individuals. So there's that aspect of the story, of the social media story. Another part of the social media story is the, the way that social media can build communities uh, of like-minded individuals. You know, so you have people that talk about gluten-free or organic or GMO-free, uh, and celebrities are part of building, building that, that community. So I think that's another important part of how social media, social media can play a role. And the, and the last one has to it feeds to our cognitive biases. I mean, there's actually other ones, but the 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 feeds to our cognitive biases in this way that that you have uh, an idea will start circulating. Think about the anti-vax um, myths out there, uh, and social media allows continuing continuing and rapid access to those those myths. So it's this confirmation bias. Like, so if you believe um, that one of the vaccination myths, you have easy access to information that will confirm that, that myth and also uh, uh, access to a community that will agree with you. That's sort of heightening the, the power uh, of the myth and, and allowing that, that myth to go on. You know, Cass Sunstein is called it the availability uh, cascade. And, and I think social media and celebrities really kind of emphasize that or accelerate the availability cascade. You're listening to Science for the People. And today we're talking about how science and celebrity culture clash with Timothy Caulfield, author of the book, Is Gwyneth Paltrow Wrong About Everything? I do want to talk about health and celebrity. Um, a lot of the fad health movements, I'm thinking diets, cleansing, juices, detoxes, really get going at the point of celebrity endorsement. Why do these things both attract celebrity endorsements and why do those celebrity endorsements mean so much to us? Yeah, I, I think you're right. I, I think detoxes is a great example. <laughs> you know, I start the book with the uh, you know debunking detoxes, but I really think, but for celebrity endorsements, detoxes would not be as popular um, as they are right now. In fact, they may not even be part of our, our popular consciousness, right? So for sure, celebrity cultures uh, has has an impact, and celebrities in particular have an impact on on things like that. Well, first of all, I think that celebrities, you know, that when they endorse something like when Gwyneth endorses something like a detox. Look, Gwyneth looks great, <laughs> no doubt about it. And so it gives some legitimacy to the idea that a detox might work. It's really powerful anecdotal evidence, right? You know, a uh, People magazine covers uh, with a celebrity uh, endorsing a detox is going to outweigh all the evidence or the, out there about the reality of detoxes every time, right? And so I think that is one of the reasons that uh, celebrities have such a huge in, influence in, in, this, in this domain. And the other thing I think is they, they tell us what we want to hear. They, they tell us about these simple answers or, or not so, maybe not even simple, but that there's this particular problem that you could fix to, to uh, allow you to get to your weight loss goals. So you have those kinds of messaging coming from celebrity culture. And I, and I think evidence suggests it has a real impact. Now, this might just be my own biases playing in, but um, it seems like a huge percentage of this comes from female celebrities and generally targets uh, females in general. We do occasionally seem to get health or beauty fat originating from a male celeb, but most of these do seem to come from women and are often targeting women. Is that true, do you find? Or is that just me being a woman noticing the women <laughs> stuff more? No, I think it 
is true. It is true. And I, I had the opportunity to talk to uh, a lot of female scholars on this issue, and I think that they would absolutely agree with that. And there's a whole bunch of interesting things going on there, right? I think the pressure on women to look young is incredible. And, you know, I have data in the book about the degree which that is so. I mean, the, just looking at Hollywood, right, and the difference between female uh, actors and male actors is ridiculous, right? And so this is incredible pressure on women to look young. There's also incredible uh, pressure on women. And again, I had some great, uh, I had some great interviews with uh, scholars uh, all over the world on this one. You know, there's, there's incredible pressure on women to constantly be improving. And by constantly be improving means trying to look better and not aging, right? It's almost like it's, it's almost cast for women as a responsibility, a social responsibility. Now, it is changing. For sure, we're seeing more and more men, for example, get cosmetic surgery. We're seeing more and more men uh, use anti-aging products. So it's starting to change. But without a doubt, uh, the emphasis has largely been on women. Why do celebrities offer these kind of endorsements when they aren't experts in health or medicine? I guess, do they understand the power they have or that they aren't experts? Is there some kind of external pressure on them to promote these kinds of health products? And man, that's a fascinating question. And I never got to interview Gwyneth, as you know, from the, uh, from the book. I really wanted to. And the one question, I figured I'd have one shot, right? If I actually got to interview her, I, I would maybe would, would, ha- would have had one question. And it was going to be, Gwyneth, do you really believe this stuff? Because it seems hard to believe, right? It, it seems hard to believe that Gwyneth would, would actually uh, have internalized the, so many, the, all these crazy ideas that she has, whether it's steaming your vagina or, or having, uh, you know, gluten, only eating gluten free and, and et cetera, and the, all these detoxes. But I, I think that they do believe it. They internalize it. And I hypothesize in the book that, look, celebrities under, are under incredible pressure to look young. So I don't really th- view them necessarily as the problem. Um, you know, there isn't sort of a Gwyneth and Oprah star chamber where they make decisions about the messages they're going to tell the universe. Rather, I think celebrities are under incredible pressure, right, to look young. And so they're willing to try anything, right? They're desperate themselves, particularly, unfortunately, female celebrities. So I think that's part of the story, right? They're, I don't know if victim is the right term, but they are almost more than anyone uh, in, in society under this pressure to look a certain way and to, you know, to be thin. Uh, so they're, they're desperate. So I think that's part of the story. Uh, but in addition to that, I think it becomes a business too. And for Gwyneth, I think that's part of it, right? It's a make business sense. They, they recognize that they are a brand. Celebrities are brands. You know, whether you're talking about Katy Perry or Jessica Alba or Gwyneth, they, it's a way to make money. And then when that happens, uh, it takes on a whole nother, uh, dimension, right? You mentioned the business there. And that just completely reminded me of someone like Dr. Oz, whose fame seems to have come in part because of taking advantage of a business strategy of promoting things like cleanses and miracle pills and that kind of stuff. Oh, yeah. I mean, um, Dr. Oz drives me nuts. He drives me nuts. I, uh, I'm sure you're aware of the, the uh, interesting study that came out of the University of Alberta that looked at the uh, percentage of recommendations that Dr. Oz makes, the percentage, what percentage is actually accurate, right? Or, so what they did is they, they uh, watched a whole bunch of Dr. Oz TV shows, and then they coded every time that he made a recommendation, and then they went to the scientific literature to get a sense of whether what he recommended had any backing, any evidence to support it. And approximately half of the recommendations that flow from Dr. Oz's mouth 
either are not supported by the available evidence or directly conflict the available evidence, which is really remarkable, right? So you wonder what's going on in, on, on in his head. I mean, he's supposed to be a scientist. He's supposed to be uh, a doctor. So yeah, for sure, I think Dr. Oz, people like Dr. Oz are, are a big part of this celebrity, um, this celebrity culture uh, uh, phenomenon. And also, it's a big part, you know, they're, it's a business plan. I mean, he's become an incredibly um, uh, influential celebrity and very successful celebrity providing this bogus advice. So it's incredibly frustrating. Fairly recently, Dr. Oz was brought, I think, in, in front of a Senate committee or mm-hmm. a Congress congressional committee talking about how bogus a lot of the advice or information he offers on his show is. Do you think the, it was really high profile. I think most people saw or heard of it. Do you think that'll put a dent in his business at all or make people think twice before listening to what he has to say? Well, it doesn't seem to have done it. I, I mean, I hope it does. Now, now I'm, I'm always an optimist and I, I have the sense that there is at least some individuals in the community who are getting fed up with this, right? And fed up with this, the, the pseudoscience. But I am, the other view is that there's a polarization happening where you have people that listen to shows like yours, right? Like this one. And then the other individuals that are just so distrustful of traditional sources of science. Uh, they're, they're gravitating towards these alternate views and people like Dr. Oz speak to them. And so I think that even when you, even though Dr. Oz has been chastised by, by the Senate, uh, in the United States, uh, people still turn to him because they think that he provides an alternate view of science, an alternate view of, of health. And his view is as valid as anyone's view in their mind. So why not listen to him? I can't trust you, Big Pharma. I can't trust you, doctor. I can't trust you, scientist who works at the big university. Why not trust Gwyneth? Why not trust Dr. Oz? From the standpoint of the debunking work you do in the book, which is plentiful and uh, quite fascinating and also sometimes very funny, um, how much of that will be news to people, do you think? And how much do we kind of already really know deep inside, even though our actions and our purchases may not show that? Um, th- that's that's also a really interesting question, and, and I think that it's you know there's going to be some people in the audience uh, in who read the book, and I, I've already, I've heard from them who were surprised by almost all of it, which uh, I find amazing because I follow the the literature so closely. But I think that that there's it's, it's going to fall on a continuum, right? Where a lot of people think, well, I knew that, but I didn't know this other thing. Like for for example, the eight glasses of water today. You wouldn't believe how many people are surprised surprised that that's a myth, right? Um, but uh, then there are even individuals that seem to be aware that a lot of this stuff is baloney, but they still do it, right? And that's, I think, happens the most in the context of anti-aging and beauty. And in, in fact, there's interesting evidence to show, that shows that. I don't know if we recall the study I referred to that, uh, I think, I believe it's a Canadian study, actually, where they, where women, a very large percentage of women said, look, I know these beauty prod, uh, products are baloney, and I know it probably doesn't have any anti-aging effects, but, you know, I'm still going to take it. I still feel like I should take it if only it might work, right? So I do think that there's this fascinating continuum where people, there's the people that believe it's efficacious, all this stuff. Uh, there's the people that are, you know, sort of open to the idea that it might work, but maybe suspicious it doesn't. And then there are even the, the ones that think it, know it doesn't work or are almost certain it doesn't work, but still feel they, they should should use it. And that latter group, I think, 
is compelled by the forces we just talked about. There's so much pressure on, on all of us, mostly women, to look a certain way, to be constantly improving, and by that I mean looking a certain way, that they are they feel that they should still do it. It's almost like a duty to try to uh, continue to look young and to continue to try to look beautiful. This is Science for the People, and today we have law and public health professor Timothy Caulfield on the show. We're discussing his new book, Is Gwyneth Paltrow Wrong About Everything? When Celebrity Culture and Science Clash. If you read a lot of science and health news, which I think you probably do, and I know I do, um, I notice there's as much talk about how evidence is mounting that substantial sustained weight loss is nigh on impossible. And yet from other corners, we're always reading about the latest miracle something or other, or what diet worked great for what celebrity. That's a pretty conflicting set of messages. Yeah, I and I I'm fascinated by that that conflict. And in fact, sometimes you know I've been in the media and I've mentioned what the data says. And the data says is you know there's a study that came up very recently that found like something like it's a pressing number like one percent of individuals can can maintain weight loss. And I don't know if I believe that data, but look, the bottom line is it's really really hard to take the weight off and to keep it off. And it's the the keeping it off part that's the toughest part of the equation. People can lose weight, but maintaining that weight loss long term is incredibly difficult. Uh, so the 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 conflict in that message uh, is is fascinating, and I almost think that that public health officials, um, you know, there's a reluctance, I, I think, to let that message get out there because it's so, it's so grim. Uh, but I do think, uh, again, trying to be optimistic that, that the sustained weight loss is possible, but what it requires is significant sustained lifestyle change. And the messaging that we hear from celebrity culture is the exact opposite, right? It's about, um, it's about short-term goals and it's about aesthetics. And I think that that also hurts the ability of the population to lose weight. When this is the message, you should go on these, you know, take these drastic strategies and you should do it primarily for your looks and you should do it primarily for this near future goal. Uh, and and the, the other message, of course, is that you can look like great in a bikini when we need to have more realistic goals about, you know, our weight, about weight loss and weight maintenance. So I, I think that celebrity culture is part of that disconnect um, and a really unfortunate part of it. It seems kind of like a losing battle for science on this front because the science is kind of demoralizing, whereas celebrity messaging offers you something that you feel like might be attainable. If I can't lose weight forever, maybe I can lose weight for my wedding. Yeah, that's an excellent point. And as you know, I, I went on a cleanse, right? I went on Gwyneth's cleanse and I lost nine pounds in, um, in three weeks. And uh, so if my goal was to look good on the red carpet uh, in three weeks, uh, I don't know how good I looked, but um, if, if your goal is to lose uh, weight, then here's this, this strategy that'll get you there. Of course, all it is is a crash diet. It's just not eating very many calories for a particular uh, period of time. Uh, but again, as I said, uh, the, the weight's going to come back on. And in fact, it's, you know, it's not a healthy way to try to lose weight. Um, and it's, the messaging is just, is, is terrible on a broader kind of public health, uh, perspective, right? So, so yeah, I think it is, it is really problematic. And, and celebrity culture is always rolling out these promises. Of course, the other thing is it's great for marketing, right? Because you have these celebrity diets that say, you know, go on this cleanse, go on this diet and you'll lose weight. And you do. And then if you put weight back on, it's not the celebrity's fault, it's your fault, right, for not maintaining the, the diet. So from a marketing perspective, uh, it's a win-win for the, the, the diet industry. We'll be right back to talk more about celebrity culture and science after this. Mm -hmm. 
Science for the People is a weekly radio show exploring everyday life from a scientific perspective. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, or to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. You're listening to Science for the People, and we're here with Timothy Caulfield talking about celebrity culture, its impact on health and science, and the book is Gwyneth Paltrow Wrong About Everything, When Celebrity Culture and Science Clash. You cover a bunch of beauty myths. Um, the beauty industry I always find fascinating, and we've done a couple of shows on this, but they always use this sort of sciency terminology that suggests <laughs> we have long ago cracked the secret to staying young forever. Um, but how much actual evidence in there that these products work at all? Um, I, I agree too. I love the terminology in the beauty industry, right? You know, it's like revitalize and rejuvenate. I mean, I have this list of all these these terms that you hear here, and they're kind of sciencey sounding, so they give it a little bit of veneer of legitimacy. Uh, one of the biggest surprises researching this book, and I like to think I'm I'm good at finding studies, is the profound lack of evidence for all these anti-aging beauty products. It really is amazing. I call it the B, but I don't know if you remember that in the book, the beauty industry efficacy bias. Um, you know, there's, everything is on the side of trying to portray this stuff as being efficacious. But the, look, most of the research, when it is done, is done by the industry, right? Um, there are, are uh, magazines and marketing forces that, that help spread that message. There is a receptive audience that desperately wants it to work, right? There's nothing on the other side of the equation, right, to sort of balance out the, the, the promises made by the beauty industry. There really is very, very little independent science, you know, good independent science on this stuff. I was I was amazed at the lack of evidence. I'm sure you found the same thing in your own investigations. There really is, is so little to support all of the crazy things we do to try to look young. One of the most surprising things, actually, because I knew a little bit about the dearth of evidence uh, in the beauty industry, was that you actually found some things that have some evidence behind them from the standpoint of, quote unquote, anti-aging, but they aren't found in a bottle or a container. <laughs> yeah, that, that's right. Um, one of the messages I heard over and over again from every, you know, whether it was in the, just in the literature or the experts that I, I talked to, and that's the other interesting thing, of course, in this realm, it's hard to find, you know, a, a, an independent uh, expert. A lot of the people are dermatologists that are part of the industry, and I'm not saying they're knowingly biased, but you, you know what the data says about, you know, do, the influences of industry in that context. So, but finding a researcher that is truly independent from industry in this, in this realm is, is tough. But one of the messages I heard over and over again was, you know, if it's over the counter, um, even if it has an active agent in it that may work, uh, it's not going to be at a strength that is going to have a, an effect or the compound might not even be stable in that over-the-counter um, product. So if it's over-the-counter, the chances of it having some kind of biological impact on your skin is, is slim, I think that's fair to say. Uh, but there are things that, that seem to work, and they're pretty, but they have, they have to be pretty drastic. They have to generally be done in a clinic. Um, and, you know, I, I joke in the book, I don't like, the, you know, I don't mean, I, I'm sad that we live in a world where, where these things remain important, but there are things that work. 
celebrities don't just keep to the spheres of diet and beauty. We've talked about vaccine myths promoted by Jenny McCarthy before on this show, and there are also personal medical decisions made by celebrities that can sometimes snowball. Um, I'm thinking specifically about Angelina Jolie's preventative mastectomies. So when I give talks on celebrity influence of celebrity culture, and you know, often I'm emphasizing sort of the downside of it, right? You know, the damage that it can do. Someone will bring up Angela Jolie. Well, in fact, we actually did a study on Angela Jolie that was something that we we analyzed um, how the media portrayed her decision to get a double mastectomy and to get genetic testing. And for me, her that that situation or that or that that case is a really good example of how complex the influence actually is. Some people will say would frame it as a good news story that it made women more aware of uh, their options and more aware of the role of genetics, um, and that's a good thing. But there have been studies that suggest that there are also some downsides, right? And those downsides are, is it, is it causing women to uh, have too much anxiety about breast cancer? As you probably know, women greatly overestimate their risk of breast cancer. Uh, is it going to inappropriately uh, drive up uh, demands for double mastectomies? And there's a little bit of evidence around that. Uh, is it going to inappropriately drive up requests for genetic testing for risk groups that don't necessarily need it? So there are a bunch of interesting questions. I raise those. I raise those as questions because I think we need no, need more evidence on it. But but it, I, I think the Jolie story is a great example of the force of celebrity culture, uh, but also the complexity of the influence it can have in our our society. Speaking of complexity in celebrity culture, uh, cosmetic surgery is often linked to a rise in celebrity culture, especially among women. What did your research find on this topic? Yeah, you're right. Um, and I had this very odd exchange with Pamela Anderson. I don't know if you remember that from the book. I do. Because um, for sure, I mean, it's one of the best examples, I think, of the influence of celebrity culture, because some of the, the decisions that people have made or the trends, we'll call it these trends, would not exist but for um, celebrity culture. And these are not trivial life decisions, right? You are making a decision to alter your body. You're making a decision to uh, involve a healthcare professional who's regulated. Uh, and you are making a decision to, to change your body in a, in a way that is difficult, you know, to alter, you know, to go back if you've, you've decided you've made a mistake, right? So, for sure, lots of evidence, uh, breast augmentation, the studies that show how closely that maps onto celebrity culture. There's another study that have shown that people have, uh, who are interested in celebrity culture and follow celebrity culture are more likely to get cosmetic surgery. Now, of course, there's a causation problem there, but still interesting data, right? Uh, and there are lots of um, examples of cosmetic procedures that would not exist but for celebrity culture. And I'm thinking of you know, I interviewed the porn stars and, you know, the vagina surgeries that are now becoming very popular, that would not exist but for, you know, the porn industry and images that we're seeing from the porn industry. How else would that, that fad exist? The other one I, I think is fascinating is the arm reductions that people get, you know, having skinny arms and people who admire Jennifer Aniston's arms, for example, Michelle Obama's arms, for example, um, are compelled to get this, uh, the, these, this arm surgery, which is one of the fastest growing forms of plastic surgery. So lots and lots of evidence demonstrate the influence of celebrity culture uh, in this realm. Going for surgery is pretty extreme. Um, do we have any idea what the long-term effects are for people who opt in for plastic surgery for purely cosmetic reasons? 
So, yeah, and of course, it's, in the book I talk about, uh, look, a lot of people get uh, get plastic surgery. They're making very informed decisions for, you know, that, that it, that's best for them, right? So I'm not saying that all uh, plastic or cosmetic surgery is inappropriate, you know, on the contrary, rather mapping its sort of influence more broadly on, on society. But there is a lot of interesting studies that show um, that people are often quite satisfied with the, the um, decision to get plastic surgery or cosmetic surgery. Um, there is a sector of, of society, and I interview a terrific fellow from the University of Pennsylvania who's done research on, on this point, where they're never satisfied, right? They're never satisfied, and getting cosmetic surgery doesn't make them feel better, um, and it just makes them want to get more plastic surgery. So I, I think there's definitely a sector of society that is vulnerable. Um, but I think for me, what I find fascinating is more the, the degree to which celebrity culture just has an impact on our norms of beauty and how to, to such a degree that we want to make these kinds of decisions. I mean, Kate Middleton's nose is another great example, right? So what if we all got out, went out and got, and it is a fabulous nose, don't get me wrong, but we all get Kate Middleton's nose and then, you know, next year there'll be some other nose that's, that's popular. These are drastic decisions to make based on fashion, right, on celebrity fashion. There's a lot of controversy around the idea that sub- celebrity culture um, and surrounding ourselves with images of idealized bodies of young, thin, and beautiful is harmful to society in terms of body image and self-confidence. What evidence do we have here going either way? I mean, this is a hard thing to test. Yeah, you're exactly right. And, that, you know, as I said earlier, I am an evidence geek, a science geek, and and uh, and I have a chapter in there where I, I do kind of critique the evidence, right, and say, look, it, it is, I think we need to recognize that it's very, very difficult to study this uh, and to study it in a, in a ro- robust manner. Um, I, so I think we need to recognize that, we, and I think that researchers will have to come up with better methods in the future in order to really make these kind of causation links between celebrity culture and, and decisions that we make and its influence on society. Uh, there's a, a scholar from the U.S. Ferguson who who is skeptical, right, of of its influence on body image, and I think he's skeptical. I don't want to put words in his mouth, but more about the long-term sort of implications uh, with respect to harm. You know, he also has done work in on gun violence and video games. He's skeptical of the connection there, right? He thinks it's all just correlation data, and I think he would say the same for some of this. But having looked at all of the evidence, I really did try to to look at all the data I could uh, from a very interdisciplinary perspective. I think most scholars would agree that at a minimum on the short term, uh, these kinds of images make people feel worse about their bodies. Um, We've certainly seen, as we've already touched on, that celebrity culture can have a tangible impact on decisions that we make about our bodies, from getting tattoos to cosmetic surgery to the kinds of uh, beauty products that we use and anti-aging products that we use. So I think I think the, bo- the evidence is solid enough that suggests in the short term it has a dramatic impact. And the idea of being beautiful and young, uh, the idea that it's important doesn't just come from celebrities. There's actually a lot of scientific evidence to suggest that being young, that or sorry, that young beautiful people really do benefit in society in a lot of ways. <laughs> That's right. I I wish that I could say, you know, and I wish when I was researching the book, I'd find uh, evidence to, to the contrary. But the most of the evidence out, out there really suggests that, you know, there's this beauty premium that, that beautiful people do better. <laughs> they, have a, they have an easier go of it in life. Now, you know, the good news is that it's just one factor of many. But when you look at, you know, big data sets, uh, people that are more attractive, you know, they make more money, uh, they're perceived as being nicer and more moral, uh, you know, all of these kinds of advantages uh, um, accrue to people that are better looking. So um, that's unfortunate, of course. 
but it it does emphasize it does sort of uh, uh, we have sympathy for people that are trying to look more more beautiful um, because you know it clearly does have a uh, those individuals clearly do have uh, an advantage. Yeah, it's hard to sort of harp on people and say it's not worth it when there is some data to say that in some cases it might actually be worth it. That's true, but as you know um, from from the book. Um, it's hard to spend money. You know, uh, some studies have shown that you, it's the is the money that you're going to spend on cosmetic surgery, for example, worth it with respect to income and the advantages that you're going to get. Well, there's really interesting data that shows that getting cosmetic surgery isn't necessarily going to make you look more attractive to other people, uh, and also you may not get back the money that you invested in the plastic surgery. So, you know, these are these sort of economic analysis that really try to say is it is it yeah beauty has an impact, but is it such an impact that it's worth investing in cosmetic surgery? And, and they at least wait, raise a question that perhaps not. I will say that I am a big enough nerd that I loved that part of your book where it actually <laughs> went into the in-depth analysis on is it worth it? That was fascinating. Yeah, it is fascinating. And I love it when they do those sort of big studies. And uh, it's sort of like that Freakonomics analysis, right, where you get a uh, kind of a counterintuitive uh, conclusion. In your book, you don't just debunk ideas that surround health and beauty that come from or are boosted by celebrity culture. You also look at the idea of celebrity culture itself, both how it's portrayed, how it's idealized, and whether the outside view matches with the reality of being a celebrity. Why did you want to look into this? Yeah, and I actually think that's the bigger part of the story, actually. Uh, you know, I, I kind of tried to start smaller, right? Uh, these sort of individual health decisions that we make and then expand towards the impact on, on our society more broadly. And I really think it has a, a profound impact. Look, if you believe the research, and again, it's hard to study this stuff, uh, people, kids want to be a celebrity now more than ever. You know, their, their career goals are to be uh, a celebrity, to be a famous singer, to be a famous sports star. Uh, and in addition to that, the celebrity life, the, uh, the, uh, the, how celebrities are portrayed, uh, and the advantages of being a celebrity are, are viewed as a, the desirable goal. They're viewed as the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow that we should all be striving to uh, achieve. And I make this rough correlation, and I admit that it's, it is only correlation, but between countries that, that um, have very low social mobility, uh, United States, for example, the UK, um, compared to countries that have high social mobility. And the countries that are, have lower social mobility are more likely to embrace celebrity culture, and celebrity culture is huge. I mean, think of UK and the United States. And countries that have less social mobility um, or have more social mobility, celebrity culture does not seem to play as big a role. And the same kind of rough correlation, and I admit this correlation, exists with happiness, the happiness data uh, that you know, the UN produces. So I, 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 I offer that more just to, for, as, a, as a speculation and something to think about, because I do think that how celebrity culture is portrayed um, and the pushing of reaching for the stars and reaching for these kinds of goals kind of is damaging because it, it, it pulls society away from the kinds of activities that really do enhance people's lives. We're talking about education and, you know, and enjoying activities for their inherent worth as opposed to constantly striving for these completely imaginary careers. Do we have any idea what is causing this shift towards wanting fame specifically rather than I want to be an actor or I want to be a musician? It seems to be I want to be a famous actor or I want to be a famous musician. 
Yeah, you, I, I did. You know, I, again, we, we can only speculate. And I, and I had both people that were, you know, actors and musicians speculated uh, on this and also had academics who've done a lot of work in this area speculate on this. And a lot of people think it's basically what I was referring to, that it's it's this dream idea that uh, a way to, for uh, for social mobility to be to happen in an almost magical manner, right? If I could become a celebrity, um, my problems would be solved <laughs> and I'll have all this money. And, uh, and, and it's funny because, you know, when I tried out for American Idol, um, I definitely heard that message from all the contestants that I talked to. And I really was surprised. I, I thought that almost all of the contestants would say, oh, I'm here in a lark. This is just having fun. This is a joke that I'm doing. Almost all of the people I, I spoke to said that they wanted to be, you know, they wanted to be famous. It was going to be a way for them to make money. It was a way going to be a way for them to help their family. And so I think that that really is part of the story. And and when you have such such low social mobility in in, uh, in most of the Western world, you could see why that would be appealing. You have a sort of dream crushing uh, chapter in your <laughs> book. Um, what are the actual chances that any individual person will hit it big and become sort of celebrity famous? Yeah, and, and keep in mind, I wanted to be a rock star when I was a kid, right? So I completely sympathize. I'm not making fun of people that have, have these ambitions. You know, on the contrary, I can completely understand them. Uh, but look, the chances of becoming a celebrity, sports star, uh, movie actor, um, singer is almost zero. It really is. If you look at the number, if you actually crunch the numbers, it is so, so small. And I love the sports examples because you could be like one of the best hockey players, football players in your community right now. One of the best. And you and your chances of actually seeing uh, uh, playing as a professional are, are near zero. Right. It's just incredible if you look at uh, if you look at the numbers. But still, people hold on to that dream. Um, and, you know, the actors and, and musicians that I talk to that really seem to be happy are the ones that are doing it because they love being an actor or musician, not because they want to be a star. And look, I, everyone's different, and I'm simplifying a little bit the, the story, but I think the overall message is, is important that these, these, the chance of making it is so, so small. And, and the other important part, of course, is that it's also so much based on luck, just blind luck, whether you're going to make it. And you can't control your luck. You can't you know, structure your life to have more luck. That's why it's called luck. <laughs> so, you know, really, should you be counting on this? Should you, should you should you base your life on a dream that is, number one, unlikely, and number two, founded largely on luck? What I found really fascinating um, is the conversation around pro sports and getting famous through pro sports and sort of getting there in that field. I feel like in music and acting, there's a bit more of an understanding that it's really difficult and it takes more than talent and you got to be in the right place at the right time. But with pro sports, there's this idea that if you just work hard enough and train hard enough and have all the best equipment and you get sort of all of the early starts, best starts from your parents, that you can really increase your chances at making it big in pro sports. But that turns out to not be the case. But, you know, that's right. And, and I, I think you're, you're right about, about actors and singers, particularly actors. I mean, there's so many people jokes about being an unemployed actor, right? Um, but uh, you're right in, in pro sports. And again, I heard this while I was writing the book and I heard it after from, you know, when I, when I speak to uh, audiences about this. Well, you're making it in sports. You know, people think there's like there's this a yardstick that you can measure athletic ability and those that, that are the best are going to succeed. They're like, it's, they're going to succeed. There are only a very few sports, I use sprinting as an example, right, where uh, you don't have sort of a subjective analysis or, or luck involved, 
But um, if you look at the data around the hockey draft, you look at the dra- data around the draft for NFL quarterbacks, and you think about how much money is involved there and how much data they have to make these decisions, and they still can't make the decision, they still can't get it right, really demonstrates how much luck is involved um, in, in making it as a pro athlete. And one of my favorite athletes in the world is Tom Brady, and he became a quarter, a star quarterback because Drew Bledsoe got injured. Like this guy got injured, and but for that, who, you know, Tom Brady, who's largely con- often considered the greatest quarterback of all time, wouldn't even have been a starting quarterback. So, so much luck is involved, uh, and so you, do, you really have just got to accept that and do things because you love it, not because you think you're going to be a star. People ask, what's the harm if you want to focus on your dream? Uh, if you want to be an actor, believe in yourself. You know, what, what is the harm in that? Well, look, I, you know, I, I joked my son did call me a dream, a dream crusher, right? Uh, I do think there's harm uh, in that if you're not going in with your eyes open and you're investing uh, fam- your, the family fortune, and, and there's some people estimated, there was a, a book that came out of Canada where they estimated that some families spend as much as $300,000 on their kids' hockey um, in the belief that they have a shot at becoming a professional. Uh, if, if you're doing it for those reasons, I think that's a mistake, right? Because if you're investing, if you think this is a sensible way to invest money uh, or to plan on your future, that, that is a mistake because it clearly isn't that. But if you're doing it because you love it and this is how you want to invest and how you want to spend your time, that's different. And I also think that uh, I heard this again from a lot of the artists, um, you know, whether you're an actor or, or a musician, um, the irony is that they think it hurts your craft, right? You should be doing it because you love it, not because you want to be a star. Um, and also, you don't enjoy. This is a horrible cliche, and here's the you know, I'm, a, I'm not a touchy feely, new agey guy, but it's this whole thing about enjoying the journey. And if if you are just so focused on on this illusion of a goal, uh, you're not going to enjoy enjoy the journey. You know, I interviewed these parents that their kids wanted to be stars, and it was heartbreaking, right? You know, there were uh, families from lower socioeconomic. Um, communities. They had to borrow money to go to these competitions and these, you know, modeling uh, conventions. It was really, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars. Uh, and that's a harm. That's harmful. It's almost exploitation, right? That none of them are going to make it. None of them are going to make any money out of it. They're just going to lose money. So it is sad. So overall, at the end of your book, did, do you feel celebrity culture is a problem? And if so, can we do anything about it? Um, it, uh, you know, talking with you uh, today makes me feel like it's a downer of a book. It's not. <laughs> I hope it's a. I hope it's sort of uplifting and and I hope it's kind of liberating because it allows us. It reminds us to put celebrity culture where it belongs. So I don't. I as I said, I love celebrity culture. It's one of the reasons I wanted to write the book. Uh, and I think celebrity. We just have to remind ourselves of the appropriate place to put celebrity culture uh, in our lives, and that is as a source of fun, as a as a as a distraction, and even as a source of great art. I mean, uh, so I think that is. Celebrity Every culture problem, yes, it is the way the, the influence is having right now, but it's not going away. It's not going away. So I think we need to recognize the, the influence it's having and try to put it in its proper place. So it's not so much the celebrity culture itself that is problematic. It's more our response to it over the last decade or so that has become more of a problem. Yeah, I, I think so. And, and the other thing, and, and this goes to more to, to scientists and, and researchers, I, I do think we need to recognize it's not going away. Social media is not going away. I, I, I do think we need to become part of the conversation more. It's one of the reasons I wanted to write the book, right? I, I think that we need to 
you know, get out there and inject good science in, into the conversation and, and inject discussions about the scientific method into the, into the conversation, you know, to be on social media. Because if we're not there, then the only voices that are, that are going to be there are the, voice, are the celebrity voices, are the Dr. Oz's and the Glennis of the world. So I hope that the you know, scientific community really becomes part of the discussion, becomes part of the popular culture discussion, because I think that's the only way that we can balance some of the noise, all the noise that we hear from celebrity culture. There are a few scientists out there who have attained that mythical celebrity status. Do you think that's a good thing? I do think it's a good thing. And, and you know, I, I get frustrated. And, and I think it's changed. I think it's shifted. You know, the Carl Sagan effect, right? You know, he was doing great science right up till his death, right? He was a, a wonderful voice for science. He was a wonderful voice for skepticism. Um, and I think that people, some people maybe took him less seriously as a scientist. Um, and that's not fair, I, I, I don't think. So I think it's fantastic when you have these scientists that get a high profile. I wish there were more and more of them, uh, you know, researchers that, that had a high profile. You know, Stephen Hawkins, he could go on and on, right? And I think that's a wonderful trend. And I do think that universities are, are starting to recognize the importance of that more and more. And even within disciplines, I don't think people look down on, uh, on scholars that do um, popular TV shows or, or write for the popular press as much as they, um, they did in the past, because I really think it's good to have scientists that do both, right, to keep that, that their feet in the real, one foot in the real science and, and doing the work, and then one foot in, in popular culture. I think that's a great trend. Tim, thanks so much for being here. It's a really fascinating book. Well, thanks so much. I really appreciate the opportunity. If you want to learn more about Timothy Caulfield or his book, we've included several links to get you started in the show notes for this episode on our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. Science for the People is a weekly radio show exploring everyday life from a scientific perspective. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, or to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to Science for the People. With me now is Dan Brockington, a professor of conservation and development at the University of Manchester. Trained as an anthropologist in London, he has worked previously in the geography departments of the universities of Oxford and Cambridge. His research has covered the social impacts of conservation policy, the relationships between capitalism and conservation, the work of media and celebrity and development, and long-term livelihood change in East Africa. Dan is happiest conducting long-term field research in remote areas, but also learns much from studying plush fundraising events. He is the author or co-author of four books, including the most recently published, Celebrity Advocacy and International Development. Dan, thanks for being here. Pleasure. Thanks very much for the invitation. So uh, you've been looking into the connection between the effectiveness of celebrity advocacy and NGO charities. How did you first get interested in this topic? Well, I normally study conservation policy, and I found that celebrity affairs was intruding into what I was studying in environmental politics basically. And so I tried to understand what it was doing and why and why it was appearing so much. And that led to a book called Celebrity in the Environment, which was just a, a first stab at this topic. And I realized there was a second story to tell, a different history, which was the role of celebrity in development in humanitarian affairs. And that led me to the, um, the book, which you just mentioned. So how do you conduct this type of research? What kinds of tools do you use during the course of your research? There are different techniques. Some people try to talk to the celebrities themselves. I was more interested in the machinery behind all of this, the systems that was, were producing celebrity advocacy and the audience responses to it. 
So I interviewed behind the scenes, talking to the celebrity liaison officers that many NGOs are now appointing, and to the media relations officers, and then to journalists, and to the agents and managers who are in charge of celebrity interests. And then I did some audience research as well, talking to focus groups and conducting questionnaires. Okay, so you state on your website, and I love this line, that media coverage of this research seems to gravitate to questions as to whether celebrity advocacy is good or bad, effective or ineffective, and that you find this frustratingly simplistic. Can you talk us through that? On one level, particularly with respect to development, the question seems to be, does it earn money? Does it bring in revenues? And the sub-question often behind that is, and how much is the celebrity getting out of this? The focus on the celebrity is a bit frustrating because it's a diversion. It conceals the more important issues, which are what does all this do for international poverty and inequality? The biggest reason, I suppose, is that if you're focusing only on fundraising, then whether or not it works depends on how much money comes in. What you miss then are the questions as to, is it just about money? Is international poverty something which can be solved through charity? Or is it actually about trade relations, about political relations, about an equitable structure to the world? That's what's frustrating with the focus on the effectiveness of celebrity. It's a really interesting thing because I think the average person on the street, when they think about charity or the work that NGOs do, especially in third world countries, they really think about, you know, donating money, donate money to UNICEF, donate Mm. money to... Wherever. Yeah. But what your research talks about at length is how there are other avenues to get things done that are probably more effective that have nothing to do with donations from me or you. Absolutely. And we call this in the UK the, the charitable brain. Um, and I should say that I've, I've only worked in UK audiences, not worked with audiences from North America or Canada. And so what, what I say may not be applicable to your compatriots, but in the UK, it's remarkably, it's just, just remarkable how often when you're sitting in a focus group, people will say that the celebrity is earning money for the charity, therefore that's a good thing. Now, I suppose, yes, it's a, a good thing for the charity, but the real measure is what it does for the broader causes of inequality. And it, it, to me, it's much less clear that there's a, a strong relationship between that sort of fundraising and fighting the broader causes of inequality. And this is something that NGOs are very much aware of. They're much, they are, they are keen to stop the broader causes of inequality as, as much as any of us. It's that celebrity advocacy can be incredibly effective beyond the fundraising sphere. And it can be a really good tool for political lobbying. It can be very effective in getting the ear of policymakers, which gets your NGOs in and gets their other interests in and allows them access to the table where the decisions are being made. Why is celebrity advocacy so, or can it be so useful in this particular realm? It's because of something that we can call simply the belief in celebrity advocacy. This is a really strange finding that I wasn't expecting at all, which is that for UK audiences, there is a widespread belief that celebrity is interesting and enthralling to most people, and that therefore celebrity advocacy is interesting and enthralling to most people. And as far as we can tell, it's not really. The response to celebrity advocacy is surprisingly muted, but nonetheless, everybody believes it works. And some of the people who believe this most, and who are most vested in this are corporate and political elites. For them, celebrity represents popular appeal and populist presence. And therefore, if you come along with a celebrity, it's as if if you're bringing along millions of people to the public. 
whether or not you are, and therefore you will get access. It's a really interesting paradox, the idea of celebrity advocacy, both what people think it does well versus what it's actually doing well. How mm. aware are the NGOs of this dichotomy? Now, this is really interesting. The expert, the celebrity liaison officers, are thoroughly aware of the limitations in care with which you have to deal with celebrity advocacy. So they were the people who were telling me over and over again, you cannot just add celebrity to some media event and expect that element. That simply doesn't happen. Celebrity doesn't have a magical star factor which brings everyone's attention and makes something which doesn't work as a story fit together. That's not how to use celebrity. Rather, you have to have something which works in its own way, which is a really good story, a really good media event, a really good campaign, a really good catchline, a really good way of bringing people in. And then if you have the celebrity in a way which is consistent with all the brands and all the messages, then it will have effect. And so they spend a huge amount of their time effectively disciplining other members in their organization to get them to learn how to work with celebrity. And a lot of them are frustrated. One of them said, I just find it maddening. Half my week is spent telling people how not to work with celebrity. So the answer to your question is that some of them get it and others don't and are learning. One of the interesting things that was in your research is that the real peak of celebrity advocacy, which we think of as being right now, might actually have occurred in the Victorian era, which compared to the amount of celebrity advocacy we see today, that surprises me. Celebrity advocacy today is, is thoroughly systematized and organized, and so you'd expect about 80-90% of, of public figures to have charities which they support. But first of all, we, we have to be generous historically with when we take celebrity to begin, and, and the, the historians are, are pushing this right back to the 14th century saints these days. But, but and slightly more credibly, back at the beginning of the 1800s, when you got figures like Lord Byron appearing. But it struck me, and I'm not a historian, but it struck me that in the Victorian times, one of the main engines of fame was doing what was thought to be good works at the time, whether this was exploring Africa under the excuse of trying to end slavery, whether it was working, whether it was setting up children's homes like Bernardo. All these good causes were an, a, a powerful engine of fame itself. And some of the greatest household names were household names because of the good works they were thought to have done. That's really interesting. There's definitely a connection in the Victorian age between celebrity and that sort of charity work. But mm. modern times, it seems to be kind of the opposite. Charities are using celebrities to kind of better their ability to do their job. Yes, they're working with them. And they're working with them quite closely and, and now quite professionally. And that's why we have celebrity agent officers, because you need somebody to, to manage and handle that relationship. It's a mutual thing. And by that, you have to be careful with this, because no celebrity that I've heard of has ever been paid for their work. I've, I've only heard, known, known four instances of that occurring across decades of activity with thousands of organizations. So, so there isn't any financial transaction. But nonetheless, it is an important element of the, the public appearance of a celebrity. And that's why it's very carefully managed by agents and PR people and managers. So it is something which contributes to the general appearance of the, of the celebrity in public. Are there instances where having a celebrity advocate does more harm than good to an NGO? There are well-known cases where organizations like Oxfam, for example, have had to suspend or, or, or break with their relationships with particular public figures. The most recent one in Oxfam case was um, Scarlett Johansson, who had a contract with a, a, I think it's a cosmetics firm, which was making its own cosmetics in, in the um, occupied territories of the West Bank. 
it's not Oxfam's policy to support the, the occupation of those those territories, and therefore they, they broke the relationship. Um, it's not the, the first time it's happened, and it was just inconsistent with, with Oxfam's policies. But I suppose the real answer to your question is it's not very often, really. It's quite rare for brand damage to happen. It's quite rare for people to lose money through their associations with, with celebrity. They're more likely to, to, to waste time in trying to set this up and failing, than, they, than, than once they got it going. So if the real power of celebrity for NGOs is in influencing policymakers, companies, politicians, that sort of thing, how effective are celebrities in what we actually think them to be effective in, which is raising money from the average person? That question is impossible to answer. Um, we, we have to have a comparison between different sorts of fundraising campaigns with or without celebrity. The thing is, it, it's not that celebrity doesn't raise money. It, it, it does, but people think that's all it needs to do. When actually the the, the causes being the inequality being deeper than that, that that's, raising money is never going to be su- sufficient and it, it, it's, it's part of a lie I suppose that publics tell themselves that this, is, this will be enough the problem I suppose it's not that the celebrity is going to be ineffective in, 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 in raising funds but it would be almost it, it can work too well particularly with the supporter bases it gets people going but it gets them going in the, the, the directions which can still the other forms of political action Dan thanks so much your research is really fascinating that's very kind of you Michelle thanks again for the opportunity to talk, talk about it If you want to learn more about Dan Brockington or his research, you can get started on his website, celebrityanddevelopment.wordpress.com, a link which you'll be able to find in the show notes for this episode on our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. And while you're on our website, we'd also love it if you'd click on over to our Facebook page or follow us on Twitter, where you can keep up with all the latest news and updates from the Science for the People team. You can also find us on iTunes and Stitcher, where you can subscribe to the show, leave a review, and download all of our past episodes. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week on Science for the People. Science for the People is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders. Ryan Bromsgrove is our promotions manager. Our social media manager is Chelsea Butler. K.O. Myers updates our website. Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. Ed Haynes is our guest coordinator. We get research help from Josh Witten. The show is edited by K.O. Myers and Ryan Bromsgrove. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Rochelle Saunders, Marie-Claire Shanahan, and me, Desiree Shell. Desiree Shell.